Good morning. The passage today is from uh, Mark 2, 18 through Mark 3, 6. You'll find it on pages 888 and 889 in the uh, chair Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No new wine is put in fresh wineskins. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisee said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry? How he entered the house of God in time of Abiatar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest, and also gave some to his companions. Then he told them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So then the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts and told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Keep your Bibles open. Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. I want to start with a question. Here's a question. Is it possible for us to approach the Christian faith too religiously? Is it possible for us to approach the Christian faith too religiously? Now, what do I mean by that? Well, is it possible for us to view the Christian faith as simply doing certain things, certain religious things, and making those things the main thing of the Christian faith? Is it possible, even within the Christian faith, to elevate the laws of man over love for God? Is it possible to make attending church and reading the Bible and sharing your faith and doing Christian things and looking Christian the main thing? 
Well, just like any other religion, it's possible to go through the religious motions, right? To do more and to try harder. But when we do more, when we try harder, have we forgotten the why? As we do more, as we try harder, are our hearts honestly moved to know God more and love God's people more through those things? Or is there kind of a coldness, a spiritual coldness that over the years maybe has developed in your soul? Well, friends, when Jesus came to earth, what he stepped into is first century Judaism. And the Jews have their own spiritual to-do list, these five traditional Jewish quote-unquote, acts of righteousness, okay? So temple reverence, number two, Sabbath observance, number three, Torah study, number four, almsgiving, which is giving to the poor, and then number five, prayer and fasting. And of course, they took these disciplines very seriously. But unfortunately, the religious leaders of their day focused simply on doing these spiritual disciplines. Sometimes they would add to these spiritual disciplines. And so naturally, over time, as these folks who are influencing God's people, well, Israel would forget the why. They would just keep checking the boxes. Our passage this morning is about how Jesus revolutionizes the Judaism of his day. We've seen already in the last couple chapters that he has authority over all things. He has authority certainly over Judaism, over the Mosaic law, over these acts of righteousness. And so with this kingly royal authority, Jesus notice, and we'll see this in the passage, he doesn't destroy these religious practices, but he does disrupt them. He does disrupt the religious leaders who have been teaching them. And he restores them, as we'll see, to their true divine intention. Here's the main point of this passage in a sentence. You'll see it as usual on the screen. Here it is. King Jesus disrupts the old ways of religion and brings a better way of relating to God. King Jesus disrupts the old ways of religion and he brings a new and better way of relating to God. Now, how many of you have seen that old 90s classic Tombstone? Remember this movie? I used to watch this movie in college probably three times a year with my buddies. It tells a story of Wyatt Earp. I'm sure it's an exaggerated story, you know, relative to historical records. But uh, Wyatt Earp is this this really kind of significant character out west. And he was in Wichita, Kansas for a season. He learned how to be a kind of police officer. He ends up moving to Tombstone, right? And he goes there with his family. And this town is just totally corrupt. It's got all of these these bad characters. And so he kind of becomes the new sheriff in town. And he, and he kind of flexes his muscles a little bit and, and kind of gets rid of these, 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 these opponents and he challenges his opponents and so forth. Well, that's kind of what Jesus has been doing and is doing in Galilee. There's a new sheriff in town. And he's kind of flexing his muscles as a king. This is not flexing muscles. I don't know why I'm doing this. This is flexing muscles. He's flexing his muscles as king, right? And, and that's going to cause these kind of collisions with these religious authorities of the day. What we're going to see in this passage is uh, Jesus also revitalizes these two specific spiritual disciplines. So you saw in the first section at the end of chapter 2, fasting. So we're going to talk about fasting. That's the first point. And the second thing we see is Jesus revitalizes this the second practice of observing the Sabbath. Okay, so those are kind of our two points. The first point You'll see it on your screen, verses 18 through 22. The bridegroom offers new wine. 
The bridegroom offers new wine. And yes, I'm kind of mixing two of Jesus' metaphors in that. So here we see another collision between King Jesus and others. And, and the Jews were commanded, we have to know this is, is in terms of our context here, the Jews were commanded to fast only once a year on the Day of Atonement. Sometimes they'd fast, you know, kind of occasionally they'd fast. Maybe there was a national disaster or they were in the process of national repentance. Uh, but, but they really were commanded to fast only on that one particular day. But I want you to know the Pharisees in the first century, they were trying to fast more. In fact, they fasted twice a week, sun up and sun down, much like the Muslims do. It was part of their religious performance. It's kind of a badge of honor, honor for these Pharisees. But you'll notice Jesus comes onto the scene. Now, obviously, this man, Jesus, he's blessed by God. He's performing miracles. We've seen that. He's teaching with authority. We've seen that. So he's this great man. But this man doesn't fast. And his disciples don't fast. In fact, Jesus has been feasting with the tax collectors and sinners, but he's not fasting. He's supposed to be fasting, right? So it's very confusing, very troubling to these Pharisees. And so in this passage, notice Jesus in his response gives three pictures. You'll notice a wedding, a piece of cloth, and some wine. So let's talk about that. He's teaching them in these pictures that there's something new onto the scene. So let's start with the wedding. Now I want you to imagine with me that you're going to a wedding. Maybe it's a good friend of yours. Everyone, of course, is so excited to be at this wedding. Perhaps it's a long time coming sort of uh, wedding. And the wedding ceremony has just gone spectacularly well. Absolutely beautiful. And then you arrive at the reception hall, and it's also just gorgeous, laden with flowers and lights and picturesque views through the windows. But then as you go to your pre-assigned table, you notice this strange sign. And it says, no food tonight, we are fasting. That would be really weird, right? And then as you're talking to other people, it turns out that the groomsmen didn't eat at the bachelor party. And, and everyone at the rehearsal dinner was rather sour and glum. Like, this would be really rude, right? Weddings and all the kind of surrounding events are times of joy. Been to weddings, I've been to weddings. That's true. And that's kind of what Jesus is getting at here. And Jesus isn't just another rabbi with some disciples. I want you to notice he's the groom. And since Jesus, the bridegroom, is here, people should celebrate. We shouldn't be surprised by this picture because in the Old Testament, God regularly pictures himself as the husband of his people, Israel. And so Jesus is like, hey, guys, you've been fasting because the Messiah is not with you. You've been waiting for this promised Messiah. You've been doing this for centuries. The groom hasn't been at the party. And so it makes sense. You're sad. Fasting was a part of that. It expressed a kind of longing and a mourning. It makes sense that when Esther and Nehemiah found themselves in a pickle, well, they led the nation in a fast. When Jonah was broken over his sin, he fasted. When the nation of Israel desperately needed protection or safety from evil, they'd call a national fast. But Jesus says here, notice, I'm here. So why are you fasting? Jesus kind of disrupts their common practice of fasting, and he shifts the focus. Notice he shifts the focus to himself. The bridegroom is here. And so joy, friends, is a quality of Christ's kingdom that the Pharisees have lost. Sometimes we lose joy too, don't we? 
Too often our version of Christianity is kind of boring and glum and sad and, and ho-hum. Sometimes we, there's a sort of austerity or severity or kind of unhelpful intensity to our Christian faith. But I want, what I want you to see here is, is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the bridegroom has come. And so we have every reason to be joyful. His arrival is an invitation to joy. And it's not this kind of temporary, fleeting, happy, clappy kind of joy. You know, some of us in this room have tried every earthly pleasure. We've hooked up with people. We've drank till we're lying on the floor. We're, we're, we're pressed so hard into our jobs because we thought money can buy happiness. But we know that's just kind of a joy that's fleeting and temporary. It's here this moment. It's gone the next, right? But friends, Jesus, the bridegroom, has come, and he's come to save, right? We know that. And so Christians should be characterized by joy. It's an essential part of Christianity. It's not the icing on the cake. It's, it's not jewelry to kind of dress up Christianity as some accessory. It's the affectional essence of the Christian faith. And get this. We are more than just mere friends of the bridegroom, right? According to the New Testament, according to the Apostle Paul, we are the, the bride, excuse me. And so what honors the Lord? What brings Jesus glory? It's not our glumness, our sourness, or, or our kind of pious austerity. It's our joy. We now have a joy that can outlast and outclass every other competing pleasure. This is good news, isn't it? It's good news. So friends, let me ask you this question. How is your joy? How is your joy in the Lord? Listen, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4 commands Christians, right? Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. So how is your joy? If you're a Christian, you will always have rock-solid reasons for joy. Uh, that doesn't mean you won't be sad sometimes. That doesn't mean you won't struggle sometimes. That doesn't mean you won't lament sometimes. It means that like the Apostle Paul, now, now listen to these words. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Like the Apostle Paul, you can be struck down, but not destroyed. You can have nothing and yet possess everything. You can be sorrowful, but yet always rejoicing. It's only the Christian that can possess this level of joy that can be set such a foundational level that we can enter into whatever harsh circumstances that life presents us we can still rejoice. We can still rejoice. Now, I want you to watch this, what Jesus says next in verse 20. He says, but the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. Then they're going to fast. Do you see that in verse 20? So these words strongly foreshadow the cross, don't they? I mean, he's notice the, the picture, taken away. The bridegroom's going to be taken away. And he's kind of foreshadowing his death at the end of his life, just probably three years later. And so this bridegroom is going to be taken away. And when fasting comes back, it's going to come back. Notice he says that it's going to come back after he is taken away. Well, the question that we have is, is it going to look the same? Is New Testament fasting the same as Old Testament fasting? Well, that's kind of what the next two pictures are about. Look with me at verses 21 and 22. Jesus says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment's Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skin. So no, no new wine is put into fresh wineskins. 
asking, what is Jesus talking about here? It feels a little complex, right? I mean, now here's one thing that's clear. We're going to try to slowly unpack this, but one thing I think is clear from the outset, there's something new on the scene with Jesus, and it doesn't really fit well with what was old, okay? There's something new on the scene. Jesus is bringing something new. There's something old, and those two things don't kind of jive together. So you don't take a piece of new cloth and you sew it on an old cloth. What will happen? Well, there's going to be a tear there. You don't put new wine in old wineskins. It's going to ferment, and then the wineskin will burst. So we got to ask the question, what is new about the new cloth and the new wine? What, what, what do these things represent? Well, they represent the new reality that has come with Jesus. So his presence, his teaching, his kingdom, his authority, and so forth. Now, what's the old then? Well, it's the Pharisees and their traditions. It's their man-made rules and extra-biblical laws. Jesus isn't just like this, this other old covenant prophet. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And so, friends, if you want Jesus, if you want his teaching, his presence, his kingdom, his authority in your life, he's not going to fit into the old religious way of doing things. That's what he's saying here. The new wine of Jesus is not going to fit into these old wineskins of the Pharisees. We can't relate to God by way of running on a religious treadmill that the Pharisees have kind of set up. We relate to God through the bridegroom, through the son, through Jesus. And Jesus offers new wine. Now, if this is true, then there's got to be a new way for us to think about fasting, right? Now that the bridegroom has come and gone, how does fasting itself change? Well, think about this with me. The basis of Old Testament fasting is the bridegroom's not here yet. He better come. He better come soon. So we're longing and praying and fasting for his coming. So that's the basis of Old Testament fasting. The basic of, basis of New Testament fasting is, hey, the bridegroom has come. And so there's a note of joy and there's a note of hope, right? But he's not here now. We're between his first and second comings. And so we can start to fast again. New Testament fasting says, yes, he was here. We've experienced some of him, but now we want more of Jesus. We want more of what we've already tasted. I just get done with a... Uh, a social media fast um, in the month of September, and it was glorious. I encourage you to do that occasionally. And, and so we can fast from things like that. We can fast, of course, from food, perhaps from other things. But at its core, New Testament fasting is pursuit. It's spiritual seeking. It's asking God with a sort of extraordinary intensity, finding yourself so desperate for God's intervention that the only thing that will kind of give vent to that is fasting with prayer. So friends, what can you do if you've been praying for months, maybe for years, for healing from a terminal disease? Maybe you're looking for victory over a particular uh, kind of entrenched sin. Maybe you're praying and longing and, and, and hoping for a spiritual breakthrough for your child who is starting to drift. Uh, what can you do in the midst of the strain of life, the stress of life? Maybe you're experiencing physical pain Maybe it's the stress of financial instability. Maybe you hear about another national shooting and it just kind of gets you. And of course, the list goes on and on, right? And, and, and I just want to say this. God's people feel something very deeply about all of these things, right? And that's a good and right thing. And so we cry out to God for him to intervene. God, you've got to show up in this. You've got to step in on this. How long are you going to keep this going? How long will you delay your justice? And when you get to that point, what can you do? Well, one thing you can do is add fasting 
to your prayers. Because fasting is a sort of prayer intensifier. Now, there's one thing I don't want you to miss as we're looking at this passage. Fasting is more than just wanting God to fix stuff in your life or fix stuff in this world, okay? You can see what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, listen, when I'm not here, you're going to want to be with me, right? You're going to want to be with the bridegroom. And that's perhaps the strongest core emotion or motivation behind fasting, a heart that aches to be with Jesus. And so fasting is ultimately not about denying yourself. It's about satisfying yourself in Christ. Fasting is about spiritual gluttony, feasting on Christ. It's not about giving up food for its own sake. It's about giving up food to taste more of Christ. I absolutely love what the psalmist says. This is Psalm 34, one of my favorite verses. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see spiritually that the Lord is good. And that's something that you can do in fasting. Now, this says something about not just fasting. This says something about really all of our religious duties and our practices. So true Christian religion is about enjoying Jesus and longing for more of Jesus. And so literally every religious practice that we do as a Christian is a means to that end. We at Faith Church, we want every practice, every spiritual discipline, whether it's personal or corporate, to aim at enjoying Jesus and longing for more of Jesus. It really is all about the bridegroom, right? All about Jesus. Old man-made religious practices aren't designed to hold the fullness of Jesus. They're going to burst. So let's just get real, real plain here. What does this mean when you open up your Bible on a Monday morning? When you pray before you eat a meal or share your faith or take a prayer walk or fast? Well, the overriding purpose of all of those things is, is the enjoyment of Jesus. This mentality, this approach is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion, right? If your heart, if your mind aren't in, in that place of wanting to enjoy Jesus, if you're trying to kind of fit Jesus within a legalistic, works-oriented performance mentality, sometimes we do this, sure, I love Jesus, of course I love him, but let me just kind of run on this religious treadmill. Let me try to prove myself to you or to God. And oh, look, I think I'm, I'm doing better than she is over there. That makes me feel great. Friends, the gospel of Jesus isn't meant to be held within those wineskins. You need new ones. Now think about this with me, the gospel. It's what we read early, earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, right? We don't need to perform because Christ has already performed on our behalf, right? We are not saved by works, any kind of works, whether it's your spiritual resume or, or kind of your community service uh, in, in Cincinnati or, or how educated you are or how well put together you are or how much is in your bank, uh, bank account or any of those kinds of things. We are not saved by any of those things. We are saved by grace alone, by faith alone in the Son of Jesus, right? And so we don't need to perform. Christ has already performed for us. And by the way, this doesn't mean... And we can just kind of set aside all of the religious practices and duties that God has called us to. It just means we approach them in a different manner. You know, we have this human tendency to, to make the Christian faith about doing more and trying harder. Sometimes we even make up extra biblical traditions and rituals and rules, just like the Pharisees did, right? Who turned extra fasting into a mark of true spirituality. We can do the same thing with different aspects of the Christian faith. I, I just wonder who here 
uh, raise your hand, grew up in a church that was all about keeping certain rules, the do's and don'ts. Yeah, look around. I mean, my hand is raised too. This is the kind of church that I grew up in too. Lots of do's, lots of don'ts. Do read your Bible. Do go to church, but don't drink. Don't play Dungeons and Dragons. Don't dance. Heaven forbid, you know, you dance. Don't watch movies. You know, don't smoke or play cards. (laughs) And Jesus reminds us in this passage, true Christian faith isn't about a precept or a practice. It's about a person. It's about Jesus, the bridegroom. And so again, every practice, every precept that flows out of the Christian faith should find its end in knowing and loving and treasuring that person, Jesus, the bridegroom. So friends, I pray this is how we approach our spiritual disciplines and the church activity that we we do together or as individuals. So the bridegroom offers this new wine, a new way of approaching God in a sense. The second thing we see in verses uh, 23 through chapter 3, verse 6, is the Son of Man offers Sabbath rest. Now, the disciples are plucking heads of grain, notice, on the Sabbath. Uh Uh-oh, this is a bad situation. The Pharisees kind of jump in on this. Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Some of you have probably seen the uh, movie, the musical Fiddler on the Roof, one of my favorites. And uh, it's about this uh, early 20th century Russian Jewish family. And one of the early scenes kind of depicts this Russian Jewish experience of Sabbath. Everything kind of shuts down, and the family shares this special meal. It's a really neat scene. Well, the average Jew prizes the Sabbath like that. If you're in the 21st century and you're an Orthodox Jew, you will prize the Sabbath in such a way. Well, the Sabbath is a sign of God's love for the Jews. He was providing them the time to rest every week. And so how can these disciples pluck grain or do a work on the Sabbath? Well, what's interesting is the Old Testament actually has a provision about this. It speaks about this in Deuteronomy chapter 5. There was a provision for those who lacked food, who were hungry. It didn't count as work since they didn't plant the crops or prepare the field. So, hey, those disciples are good to go. So what's up with these Pharisees? Why, why are these Pharisees challenging Jesus? Well, they're clearly overlooking God's explicit laws and inserting their own. In fact, we know that these Pharisees created, get this, 35 classes of work that would profane the Sabbath. And so if you like wrote something or tied a knot or yes, harvested some grain, you were breaking the Sabbath. Not only that, of course, as you can see here in the story, this is an interesting part, uh, these Pharisees were basically spying on Jesus, right? They're hanging around, they're watching Jesus, they're waiting to accuse him. They're kind of the Sabbath police, right? They throw the yellow flag and they call a personal foul on Jesus, We have to dig deeper into the thinking of the Pharisees, just a hair deeper, okay? So centuries earlier, Israel had gone into exile because they had broke God's laws. And so the Pharisees were really concerned, hey, if we keep breaking God's laws, uh, you know, we're waiting for the Messiah, but if we keep breaking God's laws, maybe he's going to kick us out of the promised land again. And so they believed if Israel kept the laws in the first century, the Messiah would come back. But if they broke the law, they would go into exile perhaps again. So what did they do? Well, they added further restrictions. It's kind of like a fence to keep the people well away from the pit of transgression. Like, here's the line. The line is actually here according to the Bible, but like, we're going to say the line is right here. So don't cross this line. If you cross this line, we're going to like really give you a lot of problems. We're actually going to challenge Jesus' disciples because they crossed this line. They didn't really cross this line. (laughs) It's pretty insane, right? In doing this, they added 
to God's word. They added to God's word. And Jesus knows this very well. Look at how he responds. It's absolutely brilliant. He takes them back to God's word. He disrupts them with the scripture. This must have stung these Pharisees, right? After all, they're supposed to know the Bible really well. And so Jesus turns to a story in 1 Samuel where King David and his followers are eating bread, but it's the bread that was reserved for the priests. And so, uh (laughs) uh-oh, like, are these guys in trouble, right? But David and his followers were hungry, and so David eats the bread, and his companions do because they were with him. It's interesting. Jesus' situation is almost identical to this. Jesus and David are both anointed kings. They both have followers who are hungry, and these followers can eat because they're connected to their respective kings. You got, some, you, got, you got some divine authoritative figures here, and so maybe we can do what they're doing, right? Reminds me of how things are uh, kind of governed in my house. We have a rule in our house that you cannot eat in the living room, okay? And that's just kind of a rule we, we made. Well, just a couple days ago, Sam, our eight-year-old, caught me eating in the living room, okay? And so what does Sam say? He says, why are you eating in the living room, Dad. And you know my response. My response is really obvious. It's because I'm the king of this house. And I made the first rule. I can certainly create a new rule, okay? Here's a new rule. That's kind of what Jesus does in this passage. Look at verse 28. Look at verse 28 with me. So then the Son of Man, here's the title from the book of Daniel. Ancient days has given Jesus this authority, this dominion. He has all authority. The Son of Man is Lord even over this Mosaic law, which is the Sabbath. He says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I get to say what is the meaning of the Sabbath and what is not, right? And these Pharisees, <laughs> it's just, there's so many ironies here. They don't get that they're bringing a Sabbath question to the Sabbath maker, right? Everything, friends, revolves around Jesus. Everything finds its meaning and fulfillment and culmination and purpose in Jesus. And so think about this with me. As God, Jesus created the world, and then he rested, and then Jesus gives the Sabbath as a blessing to people. Here's the purpose of the Sabbath. It's meant to bless people, not be a burden to crush them. So Jesus in verse 27, notice he corrects them. He says, the Sabbath was made for man. Somehow amidst their meticulous biblical studies, these Pharisees missed the whole point of the Sabbath. It was given to man to meet his needs and bring about this special blessing, not to restrict his life, not to reduce him to some sort of rule-keeping robot. There's a huge irony here. The, The Pharisees are basically turning the Sabbath into a work. They think it's a way to earn and keep God's favor, but it's not a work. We don't keep the Sabbath so he can be impressed with how well we're resting, right? That's utter silliness. Pharisees are like the overseeing committee of a golf club with beautiful fairways. Didn't see this coming. And so in order to preserve the fairways, you know, this committee, they make some extra rules. They insist that the golfers play shots from the rough grass on the side, never on the fairways. Don't trust the fairways, right? But golf courses like Sabbaths are meant to be enjoyed, not preserved like museums. The Pharisees were turning this day of blessing into a burden. It was never meant to be a burden, which is why Jesus disrupts their tradition and practices, and he offers a new 
view. Now, the same principle arises even more clearly as we look at the last few verses, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. There's a man with a shriveled hand in the synagogue. Notice the Pharisees are there. They're watching Jesus' every move. Is he going to heal on the Sabbath? That would be a work. That would be a big, big deal. The audacity here with these men, right? Trying to ambush God incarnate. And Jesus says, what does it mean to keep God's law? Does it mean doing good or doing evil? Saving life or killing? Now, what's Jesus' point in, in this response? Well, God's given Sabbath for man's blessing, right? I mean, what could be a greater blessing than restoring this man's hand? Why should the Sabbath of all days, this day of blessing, be one, one day, the one day, when he refrains from restoring life to this man? Notice how they respond at the end of verse 4. But they were silent. <laughs> Jesus recognizes in verse 5 their hard hearts. He's exposed them as frauds. They don't care about people. They lack compassion. They don't have hearts that want to do good and save lives. Their rule following is not motivated by love for God and love for people. The Sabbath is just a competition who can, you know, competition to see who can do nothing best. Who's going to win that competition? But friends, the Sabbath is for man. It's a day for doing good and bringing blessing and enjoying rest. Now, how do we apply this today? Some of you might think, hey, I guess Sunday is the New Testament Sabbath day, and so we practice our Sabbath on Sunday, and so maybe we should kind of rest on Sundays and so forth. Um, that is certainly a view out there. That's not the view I hold to. So let me just tell you, what I think the Bible teaches is you're looking across the scriptures, right? Because we have to understand that the New Testament, in particular Jesus, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament Mosaic law. And that has significant consequences. But stick with me for a minute. Let's, let's see if we can get there. So for us, the Sabbath isn't the point. It's a pointer, much like other Old Testament institutions and practices. So we don't have a temple or a tabernacle or a holy of holies or we don't sacrifice animals. We don't practice these kind of annual festivals where we go to Jerusalem, right? Those are all pointers. So what does the Sabbath point forward towards? The original Sabbath provision of rest points to Jesus's greater provision of rest. Think about this. God rested on the seventh day after creating the universe, not because he was tired but because his work was finished, right? Isn't the same thing true of redemption? When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he meant his work is done, right? And we don't add to his work on the cross. We acknowledge it. We rest in it. We enjoy it. We live in light of it. So you may be wondering, how does the Sabbath relate to me? Well, the Sabbath, the command of the Old Testament is not binding on the new covenant Christian. You're thinking about, whoa, does this mean like I can do you know, work on a Sunday? And well, just hold your horses for just a second. Let's keep thinking here, okay? Sunday isn't Sabbath for Christians. We must say that. Sunday is a day, according to New Testament teachings, when we remember Jesus' finished work on the cross. And, and, and we remember that work which enables us to rest spiritually. We obey the Sabbath command by ceasing from our works and placing our trust in Christ. Do you see what I'm saying? And we also start to live into what it means to be his new covenant people. 
And we can do this by gathering for worship on the Lord's Day with God's people. Uh, the Lord's Day is a day when we remember Christ's work together. It's a day when we can spiritually rest in Christ's work together, right? That's why we sing the songs we do and we celebrate what we do. Now, does this mean that you do less things perhaps on a Sunday and spend more time with your family and spiritual family here at Faith Church? Yes, I think that's what it means. When we enjoy this kind of sweet fellowship with other brothers and sisters, all of whom have been saved by Christ's blood, that's when we Sabbath. That's when we practice Sabbath. This is why I'd urge you not only to attend Sunday mornings, but to come early. Come early to church. That sounds kind of weird. Like, why would I come early? No, come early to church to linger with the people of God. Stay after church to linger with the people of God. Attend our evening services once a month, right? Invite someone over for lunch. Maybe there's a new family here at church you want to get to know. This afternoon, we get to eat pig, right? And lots of jokes are emerging in my mind, but I'm, I'm putting the pause on that. <laughs> Friends, we obey the fourth commandment when we remember together, enjoy together, and rest together in Christ's finished work. Now, does this mean you absolutely cease from all work on Sundays? No, I don't think so. Again, this commandment, the Sabbath commandment, the fourth commandment, is not binding to the Christian. And so feel free to mow your lawn, do your taxes, whatever floats your boat. <laughs> now, as we come to a close, I want you to see how this whole scene ends in verses 5 and 6, so first Jesus heals this man's hand, and look at how these Pharisees respond. Verse 6, immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. So, so Jesus comes in and disrupts the old religion of the Pharisees. He offers this new way to relate to God, and they hated him for it. You see that? To the point where they're starting to plot to kill Jesus. Now, isn't this ironic? Right? Jesus asked them if it's lawful to save or to kill. The obvious answer is to save. But on the Sabbath, look at what they are doing. They're plotting to take away life. Jesus reminds them that the Sabbath is about bringing life and blessing. So the experts of the law have missed the law, but they accuse the law giver. Right? Their theology, their rituals, their social boundaries, their bad interpretations, their neat and tidy world was disrupted by this miracle-working son of man. And rather than being awed by him, rather than being humbled under him, rather than being open to him, notice Jesus says their hearts become hard. That's such a sad state of affairs, isn't it? You know, every single person in this room at some point or another has had a hard heart towards God. Sometimes even as Christians, there are seasons in our life where there's a coldness towards the Lord. So we've got a choice as Christians. We can be like these Pharisees, always kind of nitpicking insisting on things that we shouldn't insist on, creating kind of man-made laws and offering up faulty rationale, elevating preferences to the level of absolutes, making a sort of religious treadmill, and then inviting everybody around, hey, come and run on this treadmill, perform for me or for us, covering up this proud, hard heart with extra-biblical rules. Friends, not only is this way of going about the Christian faith absolutely exhausting, it's dishonoring to our Lord Jesus, isn't it? It's dishonoring to his work on the cross. 
we should heed the warning that kind of screams out at us from the example of the Pharisees. The grace of the gospel frees us, frees us from running on any religious treadmill to earn God's favor. Let me say it again. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But what I want you to notice is that even though Jesus disrupts this old religious system, he doesn't destroy the Jewish practices of fasting and Sabbath, right? He shows us how he fulfills them, how he renovates them, how he restores them in some way. And so we, if we have this kind of right mindset, if our, our hearts are calibrated to using the spiritual gifts to love God more and love other people more, hey, then we're in a good place. So you don't want to just kind of cast aside these spiritual disciplines or those commandments that you see very clearly in the New Testament, the law of Christ. We want to obey them, but we're obeying them from new hearts. So friends, are you going through the spiritual motions? Are you just showing up to stuff, maybe to church or community group or Bible study or whatever? Are you kind of checking those religious boxes? Friends, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus can not only bring life to a dead heart, he can soften your hard heart. Think about Acts chapter 6, just briefly. Think about this with me. There's just a brief description of those who have converted to Christianity and being brought into the church. And in that description, Luke says, some Pharisees have come into the church too. Some Pharisees have been saved by the blood of Jesus. And so Jesus can soften your hard heart. He can warm up any coldness that's in your soul. And so let me just encourage you to run to him, repent of your Phariseeism, put away the old wineskins, right? Get some new ones. Because the grace of Jesus extends not only to sinners and tax collectors, but even to Pharisees. And that's good news, isn't it? That's good news. Amen. Let's take a moment of silence to ponder the passage and prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper.